arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I'm about to play back an assortment of chapters in Return to Dallas. Most of this material comes from the public record as well as the garrison investigation. We're about to listen to Patch and Sherry's surveillance of Lee Oswald in the summer of 1963, just a scant few months before the assassination of President Kennedy. Again, when I was writing these chapters, the source material became a mini-script in itself, as if it were planned. The point was for the conspirators to brand the Patsy Oswald as a communist and a Castro sympathizer. They did a great job with Clay Shaw, a CIA operative, according to Joan Mellon's research, orchestrating the framing of Oswald at this time. David Ferry is involved also. I should note, when I recently heard David Ferry's real voice on a brief clip, it was very low and direct. With great zeal, I re-recorded the high-pitched, wacky voice that I had used from JFK the movie. And now, part three of Return to Dallas. Lafayette Postal Annex, New Orleans, Louisiana, August 5th, 1963, 9.02 a.m. Upon leaving the hotel and all the way downtown, Patch checked the streets. Buck and the 59 Chevy bothered him less than the crew in the white station wagon. With the manila envelope in hand, he led Sherry across the street and into the park at Lafayette Square. Chirping birds masked the traffic as Patch and Sherry sat on a bench near a statue of Benjamin Franklin. Patch gazed up at the bald Franklin and then ripped open the envelope. Inside was a larger photograph of Oswald in a shirt and tie as he handed out leaflets on a street corner. Sherry studied the photo. A little different from the guy in the bar last night. He looks different, clean cut. Yellow paper pressed between the photograph and an address return envelope to the box in Austin had bold type. Lee Oswald will be handing out more communist pamphlets, but may visit the Bringier Clothing Store at 107 Decatur Street. Check for Oswald and Carlos Bringier of the DRE. Position yourself as close to the store as possible. Get the pictures and sound. So he is a communist, said Patch. The DRE is an anti-Castro student group. A lot of money being dropped here, Patchy. Patch tucked the papers back in the envelope. I'd like to know who we're really working for. I don't think that's something we're going to find out. Roselli may just be the contact, or his people could be running this. He stood and put his hand around her and panned the park. Who are the Cubans Oswald was with last night? More communists, Patch. I don't think so. I'm debating whether to call Roselli about that 59 Chevy. Maybe one of Rosselli's people is watching the birds. The Impala, wedged between a white cube truck and a high fin two-tone green DeSoto, provided an excellent vantage point across the street from Bringier's clothing store. Sherry held a 35mm Edixer as Patch positioned the sound amplifier rod atop the lowered window. For two hours in the headphones, he heard inconsequential conversations of customers, sales clerks, in Spanish and in English. 
He merely needed to push down the play and record button simultaneously to record the chatter. Here comes Oswald, said Patch. Take his picture. The shutter snapped as Lee Oswald, slight in build and not looking particularly dangerous, simply strolled down the street to the store entrance. Oswald's nose appeared larger from the side, his neck longer, and his hairline was receding. I got five or six pictures. Good. He turned on the chrome reporter, pushed the play and record button. Then he plugged the cord into the amplifier's auxiliary outfit. Let's see if he can talk these guys into becoming communists. Through the headphones, a Cuban man inside the store spoke passionately about his country. Sherry leaned toward the headphone. Talking about $10 invasion bonds. Our fight, my young friend, is a struggle of Cubans. You are at mere youth. You wish I would supply you with the writing of our fight. You can hand out our literature, but I cannot let you into our organization until you are older. Excuse me, is this Cuban headquarters? Yes, I am an ex-Marine. The speaker had a slight lisp but dragged to his somewhat passive voice. Perhaps he had an amalgamated accent acquired from several areas of the country. Patch wasn't sure if it was Oswald who was talking with the Cubans. Do you realize what this man uh, Castro has done to that tiny island? There's no freedom. People are dead. But you see, communism holds no future. This man understands our cause. Do you have some of the literature against Castro? Did you hear that, Patch? What's he up to? Somebody rustled paper inside the store. He's my organization's report about Cuba. I think you'll find it very interesting. Thirty seconds silence ensued. Patch watched the reel spin in unison and was about to shut off the recorder when the man he assumed was Oswald spoke again. Listen, I have been in the Marines. I had extensive training in guerrilla warfare. I would volunteer my services to train the Cubans to fight against Castro. I could accompany guerrillas on sabotage missions. I believe this so strongly I would volunteer to fight against this dictator. Patch raised his brows and stared outside the door. Is he coming out? She asked. I think so. No, we don't have nothing to do with military activities, sir. I can teach you how to blow up the Huey P. Long Bridge. Patch. What? Sherry's mouth opened. I can put powder charges at the bridge's foundation where the foundation meets the suspension part. I can derail trains, put a chain around the track and lock it. Or even homemade explosives like a zip gun. Holy God! She held the camera and shook her head. The Cuban nervously laughed. No, no, no. My, my only duties here in Orleans are to propaganda and information. No military activity. Patch handed the headphones to Sherry. Listen while I turn over the reels. Just before the tape ended, he stopped the machine and flipped over the Mylar tape so the upper half now hit the recording head. Most of the next 30 minutes involved low-level talk that he found difficult to hear. Only when Oswald tried to give the Cuban money did Patch stop the recording again. Sherry held the headphones so they both could hear. Well, at least let me donate to your people. Senor, I don't accept money for our cause. I, I would need a necessary permit from the city at Hall in New Orleans. I can't accept your money. Why don't you send the money directly to headquarters in Miami? Here. He said after a short pause, and then he spoke again. Here's the post office box in Miami. How's that? Sure. Now you must go to the bank. Nice talking to you. More than a half a minute later, a man with dark hair and glasses exited the store with a satchel under his arm. 
Sherry caught his photo several times as he briskly walked down the sidewalk. But Oswald was not done inside the store. I had a military manual when I was in the Marines. I can give it to you. You don't have to. Bring it to Carlos. Okay, next time I come in. Pat shut off the recorder. He took out the amplifier cord and inserted the microphone into the jack. Something isn't right here. This guy is on both sides. He's playing both sides. Then he started the recorder again and spoke into the microphone. Audio recording, three and a half inch reel, August 5th, 1963. This is Lemon. The proceeding was a recording on August 5th, 1963, outside the Bringier's clothing store, 107 Decatur Street in New Orleans. The American in the conversation was Lee Oswald. We have taken several pictures of Oswald entering the store. He is returning tomorrow with some kind of military book. I will place this tape in the holder and send it to the proper address. For a guy who is supposed to be a communist, this Oswald sounds just the opposite. Double dealing with Bringier of the DRE. Lemon out. Patch pushed the stop and then the FF button. The tape spun and raced toward the end of the spool. He removed the plastic reel with a sound duly recorded on the tape and placed it back in the container. She held up the return envelope with the Austin address. Patch dropped it inside and Sherry sealed it shut. He started the impaler and gently pulled into traffic. A few blocks away, she spotted a red and blue mailbox. Mailbox, Patch. Our man Oswald seems to be working for somebody. I'm sure whoever gets this tape will figure that out. Chapter 17. Canal Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. Friday, August 9th, 1963. The President flew up to Cape Cod on a Jetstar aircraft to be with Mrs. Kennedy and his son Patrick Bouvier Kennedy. The baby was born five and a half weeks premature and delivered by an emergency cesarean section at the Otis Air Force Base Hospital in Falmouth, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Patrick Bouvier Kennedy has a birth weight of four pounds, ten and a half ounces, and has been transferred to Boston's Children's Hospital. She looked over at Patch and opened the newest manila envelope from the post office box in Lafayette Square. Patch removed more money and counted twenty $100 bills. This must be damned important to somebody. We need to put all this money in a bank somewhere. It'd be safer than carrying it in the suitcase. What's going on with all these Cubans, Patch? Well, he said, starting the car, that's why we have Mr. Oswald under surveillance. What does that say about Oswald? Patch read the contents out loud. There will be an intelligence operative associated with a program called AK-DEFUN in the area. His name is Clay Shaw. Patch pulled out a small black and white photo of a tall man with wavy gray hair and a dark suit. That's Shaw. Remember, Rosselli said the government wants to nab me, and Shaw is with one of the intelligence agencies. Then we stay away from Shaw. Shaw's working with and maybe even controlling Oswald. Oswald is handing out leaflets on Canal Street, the 700 block. I'll monitor it and maybe even record it and then send the tape out to Box 13 in Austin. What about the pictures we've already taken? Oh yeah, I'll send the film to them once we finish the roll. The Galveston roll? Patch grinned, no, not the Galveston roll. At least Moon is dead and that's not hanging over us. My question, Sherry, is about Oswald. Besides Shaw, who else is behind all this 
pretend communist stuff. From the Impala, Patch pointed at Lee Oswald only a few minutes later on Canal Street. Oswald wore his usual short sleeve white shirt and dark slacks. He carried some kind of holder for his leaflets. As the passerby would approach, Oswald plucked out a pamphlet from the holder. Can you read what it says on those flyers? asked Patch as he tweaked the sound and peered the little reel-to-reel -reel recorder. Something about Cuba, she said, balancing the binoculars on the windshield. He was in Bringier's clothing store a few days ago, volunteering his expertise and money to fight Castro. That's not what those flyers say, Patch. It says, hands off Cuba. Do you want me to get one? No, we're supposed to remain out of sight. A woman proceeded up the sidewalk, holding one of the flyers in a purse strap. I take back what I said, that woman has a flyer. I see it. She exited the impaler and approached the woman about 20 feet away. Then she returned to the car with the flyer and the woman crossed the street. She said she was looking for a trash barrel. This is a definite communist handout, said Patch, holding the flyer in his hand. Free literature and lectures. Everyone welcome. I think I'll pass, he said, looking at the pamphlet. Who is A.J. Hedell? Unknown, said Shari. Probably a phony name. Just mail it in with your tape. Patch studied the smirking Oswald through the binoculars. Patch, 544 Camp Street. That's the same address on Guy Bannister's office card. Patch removed Bannister's card from his wallet holder. Good memory. So Bannister and Oswald are working together. What the hell? Patch adjusted the headphone, but the street noise made it difficult to hear. Oswald went to shake hands with Bringier, but Bringier shouted in a tirade about how Oswald had just come to his store to fight Fidel Castro. Oswald had given Bringier his Marine Corps training book and now was handing out literature to promote Castro. The confrontation escalated during the next few minutes and Oswald called out to Bringier. Want to hit me, Carlos? Hit me. Short time later, the police arrived and physically removed them all from the street corner. Even after they were gone, Patch stared ahead. He looked at Sherry. Oswald deliberately provoked that disturbance. I'll go back to what you asked, Patch. Is Shaw giving Oswald his instructions? Audio recording, three and a half inch reel, August 9th, 1963. This is Lemon. I'm recording a tape on August 9, 1963. Today I witnessed an altercation on Canal Street between Lee Oswald and three Latin men led by Carlos Bringier from his clothing store at 107 Decana Street in New Orleans. Oswald offered his support against Castro two days ago and supplied Bringier with a Marine Corps training manual. He also volunteered to train soldiers as well as give money to the cause against Castro. However, today Oswald handed out to the general public flyers that said hands off Cuba in support of the communist government in Cuba. There ensued a verbal altercation where Oswald asked Carlos to hit him. The police arrived and all parties were taken away. I later met Guy Bannister, a private investigator, when I was walking down Canal Street. I mentioned the scuffle and he said Oswald was with his office. That coincides with his office address written on the flyer, 544 Camp Street. The name A.J. Hadell was stamped above this address. I'll mail the tape out in the morning. Lemon out. Chapter 18. Jackson Square, New Orleans, Louisiana. Monday, August 12, 1963. 
9.25 p.m. Patch and Sherry passed yet another statue, this one of Andrew Jackson. The envelope note in the post office box this morning simply stated they were to meet Eladio Valle at the edge of Jackson Square near Chartres Street at 9.30 p.m. Patch stopped near the trim shrubbery and the gardenias. He snapped a gardenia stem and lifted the sweet-scented white flower to her nose. Then he placed it in her hair. She smiled and kissed him. They'll get you for illegally picking flowers, Patch. That's the least of my problems, sweetness. She adjusted the flower. Problems like $100 bills? A bald man with a Polaroid camera quickly approached. He lifted his camera and they both smiled. How much? asked Patch. One dollar, sir. Patch removed a dollar from his pocket and handed it to the man. The man applied a chemical to the surface of the black and white photo. You need to make sure that fixer dries. Hey, that's pretty good, said Patch. Thank you. Wow, even got the gardenia. Patch grinned and turned under the streetlight. About a hundred feet away down Charter Street, Devalier and David Ferry spoke near a storefront. How does Devalier know Ferry? I'm beginning to think they're all connected, Patch, she said once again, holding his hand. I wish I had the amplifier. Ferry extended his hands as if he were pleading with Devalier. Strange. A lanky man with slick, reddish-brown hair crossed his legs. In his late 30s or early 40s, he wore an aqua shirt and repeatedly watched Ferry and Devalley. He stood and tucked in his shirt. Then he took a paper bag off the bench before he walked into the square. As he passed several dozen yards away, Patch noticed something in his ear. He was listening to their conversation, said Patch as the man faded into the night. Who the hell is he? Another mystery man. Something isn't right here. Ferry trundled into the darkness somewhere down Chartres Street. Patch squeezed her hand and moved toward the little man with dark hair and a high forehead. Mr. Duvalli. He made a detailed check of the park and then looked down Chartres Street. I'm here to tell you that someone will be meeting you here in the next few days. I have not been told what they want you to do. I've been told that you should continue to check your post office box daily. It is a top priority. I understand. But why not just send the information to the box? That's all I've been told. Again, he looked around the square. Did you see a man about six feet tall? Reddish auburn hair? A few minutes ago, we saw a man of that description on the bench behind the trash bin over there, said Sherry. Patch pointed across the square. I knew that son of a bitch was following me. Who is he? He's a fucking intelligence operative. He hid behind the bin, damn it. You ought to mind his own goddamn business. He hit Patch's arm. Call me. Then he jogged down the street and ran at a faster clip. Just like the intelligence operative, he blended into the night. Nervous, Patch? Maybe. You want to talk? I could use a good walk and then relax in one of those bars. I could use a good drink, not tequila, though. Patch grinned as they started down Charter Street. That operative has them under surveillance. I wonder if the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. I think you're a secret agent, Patch, she said sarcastically. Bond, Patch Bond. She laughed and clung on his shoulder as they moved down Charter Street to the dimmer light 
where Ferry had been speaking with Diwali. If they keep paying me like they've been paying me, I'll buy a Bentley, one for you and one for me. He looked toward the corner. What would Ferry want with Diwali? Obviously, they're working on something together. Castro and Cuba. This whole place is crawling with people who want to rip out Castro's heart. Right, they're all fanatical. Napoleon House Bar, she said, pointing at the bar sign. One bar is as good as the next. When this is over, she said as she put her arms around his shoulders and kissed him, I want you to come back to Spokane with me. He adjusted the gardenia in her brown hair. I fear I'll be hiding from the intelligence agencies for the rest of my life. There are ways to hide, Patch, she said as they walked into the crowded bar. Photos of patrons lined the plaster walls and a dense smoke hung over the tables. There's no hiding, Sherry. I need to know who did this to my memory. But if I start asking questions, I invite trouble. She led him toward the bar and then abruptly pushed him back. What are you doing? Oswald. Oswald is in here? She pulled him back into the doorway. Oswald is in here with David Ferry. Ferry? guess he likes bars. He doesn't seem to be a loner. She pointed across the tables. The slender Oswald in a light jersey was engaged in some kind of debate with a small student cadre. Ferry, wearing a touring cap and a short sleeve shirt, leaned back, taking down a tall drink. His arm looped around one of the young male students. Once outside, Patch faced her. Aside from the fact Ferry likes young guys, how the hell does Oswald know Ferry? Maybe he just met Ferry and the students in the bar. Too many damn people operating in concentric circles. She looked at him. Everyone knows just a portion of the big picture. Something isn't right here. Bannister and Ferry, Rosselli and his friends, Eladio Valley running after an intelligence operative. Wish there was a real way to get out of this patch, she said as they backtracked toward Canal Street. I'm just going to do what I'm told. Go to the post office box in the morning and find out what the top priority is. What do you think it is? The Cuban thing. They're up to their elbows in this Cuban thing. I'm getting rid of Castro. August 12, 1963. Audio recording, three and a half inch reel. This is Lemon. There's a connection between Lee Oswald and David Ferry. He may even be associated with Guy Bannister and organized crime. We saw Ferry and Oswald talking with students in a bar called the Napoleon House Bar. We met with Eladio Diwali, whom we saw speaking with Ferry earlier. Also, a man about six feet tall was watching both Ferry and Diwali. He took off through Jackson Square, and Diwali followed him. Diwali said the man was an intelligence operative. Lemon out. Chapter 19. Charlemagne Hotel. New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, August 16th, 1963, 8.55 a.m. The brass elevator door is closed. Patch pinched the bridge of his nose as they descended. Okay, do you want to hear about my dream last night? The long car on the prairie, she asked. No, this wasn't a bad dream. I was working at a table in a park, tourists all around. And behind me there was a box-like red brick building. Where? Have you been there before? Yeah, I feel as if I worked there in the park at a table. 
like a vendor. Any road signs or city signs? She asked, leaning toward him. No. Green grass and a huge tower beyond the overpasses. Railroad tracks. People were mulling around, you know, like when you go to a national monument. You got me on that one, Patchy. How would that upset the military to wipe memories out of your head? Wait, the guy that was in that facility, you know, when they wiped my mind? He was watching me in the park. He was in a trench coat and looking for my help. That's all I remember. She put her hand on his wrist. Patch, this is coming out bit by bit. I do think you're going to get to the bottom of this. The portable TV at the main desk showed a meeting between President Kennedy and the new ambassador to South Vietnam. Jerry slowed down on the marble floor. They stopped in front of the portable TV. Newly appointed ambassador to Vietnam, former vice presidential candidate with Richard Nixon in 1960, Henry Cabot Lodge, speaks with President Kennedy in the Oval Office yesterday. High on the agenda is addressing the communist threat in Vietnam. Lodge speaks fluent French and served two tours of duty during World War II. Kennedy is a reasonable man, said Patch, but the Chinese and Russians aren't. On the newspaper's front page, the vice president sat atop a horse at his Texas ranch. In the background, his wife and daughter admired the horse with the smiling former director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Excuse me, Mr. Kincaid, shouted the clerk with a flat brown toupee. He adjusted his dark suspenders and rounded the corner with an envelope in his hand. This correspondence arrived for you during the night. Patch handed him a dollar and took the white sealed envelope with his name on it. Who left it? Sir, apparently it was left during the night. Around 3 a.m. I can check with the clerk when he comes back this afternoon. I appreciate it. Clerk nodded and returned to the front desk. Patch put his hand behind Sherry's back and moved past the tall green plants into the sitting room near the outside windows. For a few seconds he stared at the envelope. The penmanship lacked clarity and the envelope looked used. He tore open the edge and pulled out a sheet of paper with the Charlemagne header in green letters up top and a logo of ornate street lamps. The inside writing matched the outside of the envelope. Dear Lemon, you are walking into something you best walk away from. I don't know you and have nothing to gain by telling you the people you are dealing with only care about what they want to accomplish. Sincerely, Pilatus. Pilatus? Sounds like a Roman emperor, Pilatus Maximus. Patch stroked his chin. He's the man on the bench last night. How do you know? I don't. Just a feeling. Lafayette Square Post Office Annex New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, August 16, 1963, 9.35 a.m. After four days, a new manila envelope appeared in the post office box. Patch quickly opened it at the tables along the other boxes. A slip of yellow type paper was tucked between $50 bills. Patch did not count the money. Lee Oswald will be handing out his communist pamphlets again. Station yourself at the International Trade Mart in New Orleans. Clay Shaw, a paid CIA contract source, is associated with the Trade Mart 
and is helping Oswald accomplish his goal. Oswald was arrested after the last incident and was debriefed by FBI SAC Quigley and SAC Debris. Debris and Oswald have met on many occasions at the Habana Bar. Oswald frequences the Customs House building specifically with Debris and David Smith and Wendell Roach of the Immigration Service. They all know each other. After the arrest, Oswald went on a New Orleans radio station and debated Bringier and the Exiles as a Marxist. Urgent. Listen to Oswald on WDSUAM after 6 p.m. August 17th. Warning. FBI informant Orville Alcoin is also filming Oswald. FBI photographers will photograph the incident. Stay clear of Alcoin and the FBI. Attached is a New Orleans mugshot of Oswald after the street incident. Why is he meeting with the FBI? Oswald's playing both sides, Sherry, and working with a CIA guy, and I don't know why. With Plattis watching him, and us, Patch twisted his lips and shrugged his shoulders. I would say Oswald is gathering information on people and telling the FBI agents. It would appear that way. How is the FBI involved in this? asked Patch in a loud voice. Roselli did say to stay away from the intelligence people. And Oswald's obviously been trying to make people think he's a communist. Gets arrested and then goes on the radio as a Marxist. Any sign of Pilatus Maximus? She asked. No, I would say that man is a professional. We may never see him again. The New Orleans Trademark, said Patch, looking at another 4x6 black and white photo of the ruddy gray-haired Shaw. I don't know where the Trademark is. We'll have to check the map. She shielded her hand above her eyes as she looked around the park. Patch nodded as he too made sure no one lurked around her red impala parked across the street. Let's get some breakfast, and then watch the masquerading Mr. Oswald at the Trademark. International Trademark Building, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, August 16, 1963, noon. As Patch backed the Impala into the parking space, Lee Oswald, in a short-sleeved white shirt and dark slacks, engaged in a heated conversation with a Cuban. They stood outside the open doors of a triangular tan building with green reflective windows tapering out in both directions. A row of international flags lined the rooftop. Oswald deposited a few dollars in the man's open hand. Looks like he's got a few people to help hand out those flyers, said Sherry. One of those men in the background was Carlos Bringier. Sherry clicked the camera button and photographed the dark-haired man. He shook his head and threw a bunch of the flyers into a nearby trash barrel as he abandoned the effort. Oswald returned outside and, with another man, passed out more flyers at the street corner. Passerby took the flyers but seemed confused by the content. Sherry snapped another photo of Oswald's associate, a slender guy in his early twenties with black hair and an olive complexion. Patch thought it odd that someone from a TV station filmed Oswald and his people down the street. He's sure getting a lot of publicity. Some distance away from the building, Clay Shaw, in a light suit, meandered down the sidewalk. Shaw! Sherry, quick, take his picture. Where? Over there. He's down the sidewalk. 
I see him. She pressed the shutter twice. Got him. Shaw entered the building around 50 yards down the sidewalk. Another player in the drama. Which money did they send this time, Patch? 1500 bucks. We'll put it in the bank with the rest of it. Pilatus was right. These people have their own purposes. I'm just not so sure what that purpose is, but it's damned important, and I don't think we can just walk away. Chapter 20 4907 Magazine Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday evening, August 16, 1963. Another note from Pilatus at the hotel's main desk indicated that he wanted to meet Patch at dusk at 4907 Magazine Street in the city. A nervous Patch convinced Sherry not to take the Impala, and they proceeded on foot with a small notebook and the camera. He did not trust Pilatus or anyone else, and he had tucked the 38 in his jacket pocket. Patch set up a position behind a telephone pole a hundred feet down the sidewalk and across from 4907 Magazine Street, a small duplex with a slight overhanging porch. As darkness fell, a car pulled up in front of the apartment. A Latin man and another guy walked up to the porch. Lee Oswald opened the front door and let them inside. I should have known. Obviously, Pilatus knew. Yes, I did, said a voice from behind. The man from Jackson Square, hair more dirty blonde, slicked back, wore a blue and white shirt with light chinos. He saluted as he approached from behind. Patch took Sherry's hand and backed up. Pilatus, I am he. He stared like a cat with crossed paws ready to pounce on its prey. The man across the street, entering Oswald's place. I'll call him Q. So what? Oswald thinks he's working for Castro. Plaz shook his head. Not the case. He's anti-Castro all the way. Who are you? asked Patch. I wanted to meet you in person. I did some background checking on you through my contacts. Your file is classified, Kincaid. She lives in Spokane and taught sixth grade at the Corson Middle School until she left last year. I have no idea how you two linked up. Sherry spoke from behind Patch. How do you know all this? Not important. Then who am I? Told you I can't access that. But I will tell you this. You appear to be following a man I've known since we were both in the service together in Japan. He's being used by multiple agencies. Primarily, he's an FBI informant, but he's deep with naval intelligence, the anti-Castro Cubans, the Direction General Intelligentsia in Havana, the KGB, the CIA, organized crime, and there may be more. It's crazy, but the main one is the student group DRE. They're being funded by the thousands from an intelligence controller. I will only give you his cover name, Howard. Why are they funding exile groups, asked Patch. Like everything else, to fight Castro or to make him look bad, if they had their way, an invasion would take place tomorrow morning at sunrise. Does Washington know about this, asked Patch. No comment. Your game, Kincaid, he said laughing. Lemon is sooner or later going to cross them or mine. I strongly suggest that you leave the city and disappear forever. 
He made a gesture with his fingers as if he were walking. Get out of this while you can, because sooner or later they'll kill you. Why? asked Patch, maintaining his distance. This Cuban thing is a menace. It's made killers out of patriots. It's brought out the haters like Bannister and Ferry. And they're in tight with the anti-Castro people you should be aware of. David Morales, Bernard Barker, Frank Sturgis, Arcasius Smith. Listen to me. Has a man named Pasquale called you? Pat shook his head. No, but I want to know what Oswald is really up to. Like I said, Oswald is being handled, used for propaganda. That's all right now. He moved down the steps until he looked into Patch's eyes. It's all in the name of killing Castro. I'm going to do my job for numerous people. Sherry spoke from behind. An impassionate speech for someone just giving advice. Pilatus did not smile and kept the same flaccid countenance. All I have to do is say the word, and David Phillips will have me put a bullet between your eyes. Is that what you want? Who is Phillips? He shook his head as if he were disgusted. Right. You're an amateur. Don't play games with me. There's somebody following us. What's that supposed to mean to me? A sticker with a number on it, on his binoculars. What's the number? He asked, pulling out a notebook out of his pants pocket. OP-921E2, and I have his tag number, 10181939. What state? He asked, writing down the numbers. North Carolina, she said. Pilatus looked up quickly. North Carolina? Yes. The dealership was at Nag's Head, Patch added. Pilatus stared at him. He placed the notebook in his pocket. Do not send this information anywhere. You haven't, have you? No. Good. What is it? Pilatus said nothing more and walked diagonally across the lawn and then down the sidewalk into the dark. Patch took two steps after him and then turned to Sherry. He knows Sherry. The door opened at Oswald's apartment. Patch pressed his lips. We're going to walk lovey-dovey by that apartment on this side of the road. Okay. He put his arm around her as they ambled forward. They were directly across the street as Oswald accompanied the two men to their car. He briefly looked over at Patch and Sherry, but continued his conversation with the two men. We would be proud to have you join the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Just send your application back to the house here. Thank you, said the dark-haired man. The car started as Patch and Sherry approached the next corner. Patch steered her to the right. The engine grew louder and the car continued down the street. Oswald climbed the stairs and closed the apartment door. What now, Patchy? We're going to get the Impala and check into another hotel, maybe outside of town. Agreed? I think this is very dangerous. I don't trust Pilatus, said Patch. Sherry pointed at Patch. He knows who Buck is working for. He does. Maybe he has orders to kill us and is giving us a chance to leave. We'll stay away from the post office for a few days. I think he's a nutcase, she said. I don't discount that either. And your file patch is classified. I'll figure that out. With no memory, she asked as they headed back toward the main road. That's a good one. Right. 
Now we know why Mr. Oswald is so important. Propaganda. He's being used for propaganda. Maybe. Patch nodded and looked back through the yards on Magazine Street. If what he said is true, then Oswald really doesn't know who he's working for. No one can balance all those allegiances without getting into serious trouble with someone. New Orleans, Louisiana, Saturday, August 17, 1963, 6.05 p.m. Patch sat next to a little table model radio. Sherry joined him on the couch. So, Mr. Oswald hits it big time on the radio, she said. Patch squinted with his fingers together in a praying position. He's on the radio for publicity. Well, I could think of better publicity than going on the air and telling everyone you're a communist. Patch looked up slowly. Exactly. The fact that he's a communist will be heard everywhere. Why? Why has he done anything he's ever done? I don't get it. This is the first in a series of Latin listening post interviews of persons more or less directly concerned with the conflict between the United States and Cuba. In subsequent programs, we will present talks with the people who are connected with the Cuban refugee organizations, people who are connected with President Batista and United States citizens with direct states in the outcome of the Cuban situation. Tonight we have with us a representative of probably the most controversial organization connected with Cuba in this country. The person, Lee Oswald, secretary of the New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Patch raised his brows at Sherry. This organization has long been on the Justice Department's blacklist and is a group generally considered to be the leading pro-Castro body in the nation. So, Patch, why is Bannister's address on those pamphlets? Makes no sense. Sure it does. Oswald's trying to penetrate the organization or make them look bad. Young Lee Oswald was arrested and convicted for disturbing the peace. He was arrested for passing out pro-Castro literature to a crowd, which included several violently anti-Castro refugees. Patch pointed at the radio. Carlos Bringier? They make it sound like the 1917 Russian Revolution. He walked to the window, but turned when Oswald's voice came over the radio. For 23 years old, he sounded remarkably articulate. We have decided to feel out the public what they think of our organization and the aims and for what purpose we have, as you said, been distributing literature on the street for the purpose of trying to attract new members and feel out the public. Then what is he doing with the CIA guy, Shaw? asked Sherry. The whole thing is a sham. And someone called the TV stations? They were filming that thing at the trademark. Oswald certainly has his face out there now. Are you at liberty to reveal the membership of your organization? No, I am not. Of course not, said Patch, laughing. He's the only guy. For what reason? Well, as secretary, I believe it is a standing operating procedure that our organization consisting of a political minority, protect the names and addresses of its members, and I have every, uh, uh, that, is, that is my duty and the reason that I do that. Patch returned to the window and looked over the iron railing toward the amusement park roller coaster. He sounds too good, like he's been rehearsed. I was just going to say that. 
He returned to the couch and listened to a detailed discussion by Oswald of the Cuban and Russian situation. Then he spoke of Ghana and the countries in Africa as he tried to skirt the issue as to whether Castro was really a communist. The host provided a barrage of reading and quoting for some time, yet Oswald answered as adeptly as someone at the State Department. Then he asked someone to write to the Times-Picayune newspaper's letters to the editor. He mentioned the TV station, said Patch, like he's garnering publicity. This guy's been rehearsed, sweetness. Listen to him talk in depth about Latin America. How does this average guy who worked at a coffee company know so much about the history of Nicaragua? Contrasting their agricultural system with Cuba? Patch stroked his chin at the window. I want to know who the hell Rosselli has linked us to. We'll have to figure that one out. They'll never tell us. Audio recording, three and a half inch reel, August 17th, 1963. This is Lemon. I'm recording this tape in New Orleans. Lee Oswald again handed out his Marxist pamphlets. This time he was with two other men in front of the International Trademark in New Orleans. The intelligence operative, Clay Shaw, saw the operation from down the sidewalk. I have photographs on the roll included in this mailing. One man refused to work with Oswald and threw the flyers in a trash container after being paid by Oswald. The other man and Oswald continued to hand out pamphlets to all who went by the trademark. I received a note from a man identified only as Pilatus. It reads as follows. Mr. Kincaid, you are walking into something you best stay away from. I don't know you and have nothing to gain by telling you the people you are dealing with only care about what they want to accomplish. Sincerely, Pilatus. Later, in front of Oswald's apartment at 4907 Magazine Street, we met Pilatus in person. He warned me that Oswald was associated with numerous government intelligence agencies. He advised us to leave town. On August 17th, we listened to Oswald on WDSU talk in detail about his activities as the Secretary of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, as well as the situation in Latin America. Lemon out. Chapter 21. The Venture Motel, Pontchartrain Beach, New Orleans, Louisiana, Monday, August 19th, 1963, 1.15 p.m. Patch studied the ornate black iron railing along the second-floor balcony of the little hotel. Shari held his arm as they skirted the grass and sand area, separating them from the entrance of the Pontchartrain amusement park. She read the pamphlet for the park that she had picked up in the hotel lobby. The entrance resembled a highway toll gate with a sweeping white wooden roller coaster towering over a smattering of little palm trees. Patch, this looks like a good place to get away from the surveillance and have fun. He smiled as he looked at the roller coaster in the sunshine. I'm all for that. His face morphed into serious as he continued his mini surveillance of every street corner and alcove all the way up to Lafayette Square. Near the post office, he approached a kid with his short hair combed back on the sides. He offered the truant teenager named Newton $5 to enter the Lafayette Postal Street Annex and retrieve his mail from P.O. Box 300543. Then he and Sherry waited on a slotted park bench. He crossed his legs as Newton in his t-shirt and jeans walked up the stone steps. Pilatus is very clever, Patch, and we're just sitting ducks. I'm aware of that. 
Shar is a problem too. I think they're following him. You could be working for the Russians. Pat shook his head. Roselli hates the Russians, and he's friends with Bill Harvey, and Harvey is an intelligence agent. Yes, he is, but I don't think he's involved with what we're doing. Roselli would have introduced him, or maybe not. She opened their leather bag and slipped out the juicy fruit gum. She leaned the pack toward Pat. She shook his head. What about Oswald? She asked, putting a stick in her mouth. Face it, Patch. We're smacked in the middle of an intelligence operation. Pilatus dropped a name, Howard. Howard is the controller of a lot of people. I think Oswald is one person, and they have him either trying to piss off Carlos and his people, or trying to discredit the fair play for Cuba thing. Our reports are worth it to someone who can shell out thousands, with Pilatus watching all this for somebody else. And him telling us to sit on this North Carolina information. Patch tilted his head back and laughed. Oh, what's so funny? Here you are reading those spy novels, and now you're in the middle of all this. She chewed and smiled. Real funny, Patchy, real funny. If we don't get killed, it should be pretty interesting. He looked up when Newton exited the post office with a manila envelope in his hand. Here he comes. Patch again looked around the park as he stood. Newton crossed the street and walked up to them. Anybody watching you in there, Newton? No, sir. Except the man at the counter. He was sorting mail. He handed the little key to Patch and then the envelope. Shouldn't you be in school? asked Sherry. What are you, a teacher, ma'am? As a matter of fact, I am, but not here. Oh. You have a phone number, Newton? asked Patch. You ain't gonna turn me in, are you? No. I just may need someone to go to that box again and I'll call you. Sherry handed him a pen and her little notebook. You are a teacher. I can tell, ma'am. He wrote down his number on the page. Patch handed him $5. Thank you, sir. We'll be in touch. Newton held the $5 bill with both hands and then stuffed it in his jeans as he turned. He waved and disappeared across the park near the Henry Clay statue. That kid can't believe his good fortune. Patch ripped the manila envelopes corner. He felt more money inside, but he dragged out the typewritten yellow paper. We're going to a party. 601 Royal. Just says check for Oswald and his associates. Another 500 for us. They're getting stingy. And Oswald is on the radio again. Wednesday night, same time, same station. You see what's happening here, Patch? For whatever reason, Oswald's name, or I should say his notoriety, is getting out there. Maybe he'll head back to Russia. Or Cuba. They meandered around the park, but Patch still worried about being tailed. He looked over his shoulder at the park's pamphlet. Here, she said, placing the pamphlet in his hand as they sat on the bench. I knew you wanted to go to that park. Maybe. He ran his fingers over the map of the park. Ferris wheel. I like Ferris wheels. What about the Zephyr roller coaster, she asked. Patch grinned and panned the colorful flower beds. They have a German ride, the Wild Mouse. Sky ride looks good. I like being up in the sky. Then he imagined the horizon, the light, the blue sky, and the curved earth. 601 Royal Street, the French Quarter, New Orleans, Louisiana, Monday night, August 19, 1963, 9 p.m. Patch parked the impeller away from the streetlight and behind an extended hedge. As Sherry read the Bond novel Thunderball under the glove compartment's light, he aimed the sound amplifier at the upscale light-colored house. An hour and a half had passed, but he had learned little of value. 
party noise had messed up the conversation and political arguments between Oswald and the students inside the house. Around 10.30 p.m., Oswald Ferry and a few students holding drinks appeared on the iron rail terrace. The glow of the yard lamps and the interior light cast a milky glaze over them as they traded sharp words about United States foreign policy. There he is. She looked up from the book and leaned toward the headphone. Why are they so upset? Cuba is a hot issue. Patch pointed the amp toward the terrace and started the recorder. How many failures do we have to have before Castro is gone? Asked Oswald. They've tried to kill him now. How many times? Ferry replied. For me, I would kill him with cancer. Ferry's nuts. You know what Goldfinger said? Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, and the third time it's enemy action. Patch thought about that for a second as someone in the background responded to Ferry. Like killing with cancer would work. Go ahead, laugh. I have it on good authority through the best doctors in the country right here at Tulane that injectable cancer can kill. And it will cause Uncle Fidel to expire. Like your mice? No, monkeys. Ferry shook his head. I've written medical briefs for Attorney Gill. Where'd you get your doctor's degree in the quarter? Patch smiled but was confused by Ferry. Those mice had a stench keeping them in cages, killing somebody with cancer. Come on. You'll see when somebody actually does die from a cancer infection. You'll know when I know. Young dark-haired woman took Ferry by the arm and led him around the corner of the terrace. David, what do you think of Dr. Sherman and Asha would say if they knew you were talking about a classified project? Ferry shook his head. Who cares? What you do not realize, my dear, is Dr. David Ferry has spoken. He yelled about Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs. Oswald stood back as Ferry, all the way back inside the house, called the president a traitor. Then the conversation blended in with the rest of the party. Oswald talked briefly to the dark-haired woman and they stepped back inside the house. Oswald so easily floats into the role he needs to play, said Sherry. I frankly don't think he cares either way in Cuba. It's whomever he's with. In his own little world, she said. Oswald is not suave and sophisticated, but he's smart and very clever. But killing with cancer? I think he has big ideas, Ferry. Do I look like the director of Central Intelligence? Asked Ferry, probably still annoyed from the terrorist argument. I protest your sarcasm. Oh, shut up. Patch lost their voices in the conversation. Sherry kissed his cheek. Are they done, Patch? Well, we're done here. Nothing new except Howard, the controller. Get to Howard and you'll find out who's controlling this whole operation. Or to Bishop. The Venture Motel, Pontchartrain Beach. New Orleans, Louisiana, Wednesday, August 21st, 1963, 6.05 p.m. Patch, the radio thing is about to start, she called from the bed. The Bakelite Philco radio had a speaker that produced a clear, resonating fidelity. It's time for conversation carte blanche. Here is Bill Slater. Good evening, and for the next few minutes, Bill Stuckey and I... Bill, whose program you probably heard last Saturday night, Latin Listening Post, 
Bill and I are going to be talking with three gentlemen on the subject mainly revolving around Cuba. Our guests tonight are Lee Harvey Oswald, Secretary of the New Orleans Chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, a New Orleans headquartered organization which is generally recognized as the principal voice of the Castro government in this country. Patch stood and slowly paced as Stuckey gave a background of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He mentioned the fight on the street and how Oswald was arrested. Then he talked about Oswald's marine background. You did live in Russia for three years. That is correct. I think the fact that I did live in the Soviet Union gives me excellent qualifications to repudiate charges that Cuba and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee are communist controlled. Fair Play for Cuba Committee as the name implies, is concerned primarily with Cuban-American relations. How many people do you have in your committee here in New Orleans? I cannot reveal that as Secretary of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. You know, he handles himself well, whatever the hell he's trying to accomplish. Is it a secret society? No, Mr. Butler, it is not. However, it is standard operating procedure for a political organization consisting of a political minority to safeguard the name number of its members. Well, the Republicans are a minority, and I don't see them hiding their membership. Well, the Republicans are not. A, uh, well, Republicans are an established political party representing a great many people. They represent no radical point of view. They do not have a very violent, sometimes emotional opposition as we do. We? He, Patch, moved toward the refrigerator. Coke? Thanks. He opened the bottles and grabbed a couple of glasses as Oswald and Stuckey continued. Are you a Marxist? Yes, I am a Marxist. What's the difference? The difference is primarily the difference between a country like Ghana, Ghana, Yugoslavia, China, Russia, very great differences. Differences we appreciate by giving aid, let's say to Yugoslavia in the sum of a hundred million dollars or so a year. That is extraneous. What's the difference? The difference, as I have said, is a very great difference. Many parties the countries are based on Marxism. Many countries, such as Great Britain, display very socialistic aspects or characteristics. I might point at the socialized medicine in Britain. I was speaking of, gentlemen, I have to interrupt. We'll be back in a moment to continue this kind of lively discussion after this message. I've heard enough, said Patch. What do you think? What I did before the show. He's playing both sides, and now he's up the ante with this exposure. This is a very delicate operation. I didn't think that at first when he was handing out those pamphlets. Patch finished the coke. You're right. Whoever's paying us wants to know exactly what Mr. Oswald is doing. Chapter 22 Pontchartrain Beach Amusement Park New Orleans, Louisiana, Thursday, August 22nd, 1963, 3.39 p.m. Patch and Sherry sat on a concrete surround under a miniature spreading palm. A line of people looped outward under the yellow and red sign for the Laugh in the Dark ride. Patch, that laughing clown, I know you were scared. Well, yeah, the stupid bouncing thing. Like we need anything more scaring us. A slender man in yellow Bermuda shorts and a stooped little woman in a green sundress held hands and walked by the ride. I like it when people stay together all those years. She looked into his eyes and held his hand. 
My mother left me my grandfather's land just before they went to Hawaii. You can see Mount Hood from the top of the hill. It looks over the spread where my grandfather and grandmother are buried. Snow-covered hillside with winter trees and mountains in the distance came into his thoughts. Centerville, Vermont, no. I just had a memory come back. Ancestors in a cemetery in Vermont. She straightened up and held his shoulders. Keep thinking. You live up there? No, I was passing through and a truck driver drove me south. The sound of the idling truck lingered in his mind. She held onto his wrist. How did you get there? Patch shook his head. I don't know. Patch, this is the first time you remembered anything. The emotion of what I said somehow hit something inside your head. Maybe there's a crack in the hypnosis. He nodded as he stood and pinched his chin. Then he raised his index finger. Jeffries. The guy's name was Jeffries. He and his wife lived in a farmhouse. They made maple syrup and vats. He visualized the steam rising from a long barn in the snow. Good, good. She was expecting, and had voted for Kennedy. See, that was it. The two thoughts overlapped. He looked into her moist brown eyes, and then she hugged him. Maybe it's wearing off. Then you'll know, Patch. The Ferris wheel seats were held in place by gold neon finger-like surrounds connected to interior white glowing spokes. The wheel inched upward over the amusement park as the attendant loaded more people into the seats below. Patch looked out over the river lights. The neon shined over them and Sherry's dark hair flowed onto his shoulder. Something about you sitting in that ticket booth. I didn't know where I was. You still don't. Her laugh was muffled in his shirt. Patch grinned. Tell me more about your grandfather's land. She sat up as the Ferris wheel finally began turning. You can see the falls, too. It's beautiful at sunset when the city lights come on. The wheel fully turned now, and Patch held on to her. You're not affected by the motion, Patch. My stomach just tingled all the way down. He smiled. That's why I like being high in the sky. Maybe that's why Pilatus said the government is after you, Patch, and why you have a classified file. Still doesn't make sense. Oswald and Ferry lingered with two men at one of the Midway booths. Here we go again, said Patch, pointing down to the Midway. Oswald spoke with the man in the booth as well as the men out front. The Ferris wheel slowed. Patch, we have no way to monitor them from up here. The amplifier is back in the car. Then we get closer. I want to know what this group is all about. They warned us in Texas about getting too close. A few minutes later, the car moved to the platform and rocked, and the attendant removed the restraining bar. Patch quickly led her down the metal stairs, and they slithered along the outer booths. He brought her behind a second booth down the midway. Ferry wore a white silk shirt and blue slacks. Oswald was dressed more conventionally in a red checkered shirt and chinos. Ferry's voice was the loudest. I've charted air routes all over the Gulf and into Central America, my friend. Certain missions in Cuba. With you, whispered Sherry. Patch placed his finger over her mouth as Ferry continued. We're not going to take this nonsense from Washington much longer. The scales are going to be balanced. Do you get it? Well, do you? The guy inside the booth said something inaudible. Nice to meet you, said Oswald, politely shaking his hand. You just remember the implications of what I said. 
Ferry told the guy inside the booth. It's time to play for keeps with these bastards. They left good men on the beach in 1961. He and Oswald veered away. Patch glanced over his shoulder, but Sherry led him back toward the Ferris wheel. What's that all about? I think maybe they're going to invade Cuba again. Who knows? Patch stared at the glowing beacon atop the Zephyr roller coaster. People in the Zephyr car screamed and raised their arms down the incline. To his left, two Latin men in bright shirts watched them from under the wild mouse's tall neon cat. One of the men wore a white Panama hat. A few seconds later, both men moved toward them. Those guys are following us, don't look. Then Pilatus was right. Maybe. I wonder if they know where we're staying. He took her hand and eased into the carnival games to the right. Then he flipped down money for a ride on the carousel. He guided her to the ride. The bald-headed ride operator stuck his tipperillo in his mouth, took the ticket, and ripped it back into Patch's hand. Back by the games, the two men moved in unison and were joined by a third man with dark hair wearing sunglasses at night. Sherry slipped into one of the seats. I know they saw us, said Patch. The carousel music started and the operator yanked a lever back. Soon they moved around to the dark and far side. When they emerged into the midway light, all three men stood with their arms crossed less than 20 feet from the ride. Patch, they're going after us. The carousel moved around back. We'll jump off when it slows. She looked over his shoulder. Can't see anything out there. Exactly, he said as they came around again. Now the men were closer to the carousel exit. Patch counted seven more revolutions before the ride started to slow. She held his hand tightly. They rode slowly into the dim light and both stood. He shuffled with her to the edge. On the far side, they leaped onto the grass and stumbled over the cables. They burrowed behind some of the midway tents. Several openings laced with more cables and humming compressors separated the midway and the darkness. The entrance sign to the sky ride was near the water. Green and red roof gondolas tilted down as they entered the concrete platform under a white slotted roof. Patch purchased the tickets and they were loaded onto the next car. As they rose above the park, he searched for the men. What if they see us? Then this will become the parachute ride. Not funny. He spotted all three men on the midway, walking slowly as if they were canvassing the area. Don't worry, Sherry. Nobody ever looks up. Chapter 23 Louisiana State Highway 61, Monday, August 26, 1963 This may be the most important assignment for you, Lemon. Lee Oswald is more than likely heading to the area of Clinton and Jackson, Louisiana, late in the day on August 26th and we don't know why. Follow Oswald out of town when he heads north. Catalog all activities of Oswald and his associates. Why is he up there? Confirm Oswald contact with an 18-year-old Jackson woman named Gloria Wilmot. You want some juicy fruit? She asked as she dipped the yellow pack of gum toward him. The pack had a distinctive flavor. No thanks, I'm just hoping Oswald is in this area. Patch gripped the wheel as he drove down the winding state highway ahead. Occasionally, smoke from a fire in the backlands drifted into the car. Oswald leads a very elusive life. She began chewing the gum and Patch smiled. 
Do you know they're estimating almost 200,000 people at the Lincoln Memorial on Wednesday? Dr. King. He said his anxiety spread across his gut, but he did not know why. The Impala took the state highway curb easily, past the next clump of trees. As he reached the curb where the highway straightened out, the area opened up into a combination of wood and wetlands. How do you move every African American into the mainstream? African American? You mean Negroes? Right. How do you make sure Negro men are hired into good jobs? Everybody has to compete equally. That won't happen either. She turned sideways toward him. There's one thing I have confidence in, and that's President Kennedy's ability to think about things and solve problems. You're right about that, he said as he crept around the curb. Then he eased on the gas, his eyes moistened. High ideals. She moved closer toward him. I think King is turning the world upside down. He's walking a fine line in this country, Sherry, said Patch, and so is Kennedy. I read about how he and his brother confronted the bigots in Mississippi and Alabama. This is America, Patch. The greatest country in the world. People will come around. Highway 10, Jackson Parish, Louisiana. Monday, August 26, 1963, 5.11 p.m. Patch returned to the car with two chicken sandwiches, fries, and a couple of bottles of Coke. The little town north of New Orleans had a silent stillness in contrast to the city. Little cool out here. Wish I had brought a jacket. You all right? Fine. We're 116 miles out of New Orleans, Patch. What's happening? Patch pointed across the street. Oswald's getting a haircut. I didn't think he needed one, but he's getting a haircut anyways. Patch looked at the lazy sidewalk extending to the curb. A simple sign with handwritten letters, Barbershop, projected outward above a white door with a dark glass window. A larger window was set in the brick facade to the right. That's bizarre. Patch set his sandwich on the dash and quickly placed the headphones over his ears. He raised the binoculars. Inside the larger window, the barber turned the chair with Oswald in it toward an oversized picture of Martin Luther King on the wall. The barber said the photo was from a communist rally. A barber shop is a good place to get a haircut and information. You know where I could get a job? The only place I know to get a job is at Louisiana State Hospital. But do you know anybody in New Orleans who can help you get on? I don't know anybody to help. Actually, I am looking for a job at the East Louisiana State Hospital. After a short silence, the barber cleared his throat. You should go see Reese Morgan. He's a state representative. He worked there as a guard, or Henry Earl Palmer in Clinton. He's the Register of Voters. See, I believe you have to be a registered voter to work in the hospital. Where is the state hospital? Just east of here on Highway 10. What kind of a hospital is it? Well, it's a mental hospital. Oswald jumped in the chair. Oh, really? Gee, I, I wanted to get a job over there. Do they have all kinds of jobs over there, like the electrician? If you know somebody, you'd have a better chance. That's a nice haircut, said Oswald. Here, let me write down Reese's address for you. I'll draw a map. Do you have change for a five? Patch removed the headphones. He grabbed the sandwich and unwrapped the wax paper. When he looked up, Oswald was gone.
that Barbara wrote down the address of someone who could help Oswald get a job at the state hospital. He took two huge bites of the sandwich and washed it down with the Coke. I guess you have to live here to work at the hospital. Something isn't right. Why does he want to do that? You know, work in that hospital. He held his index finger as he chewed the chicken. They, meaning his handlers, need him there for some reason. Patch had half-eaten the sandwich when a shiny black Cadillac rolled around the corner. He rolled up the sandwich into the wax paper and moved the amplifier toward the back seat. Oswald sat in back of the Cadillac with his arms draped over the front seat. Two people were in front. One of them was Clay Shaw. Patch heard laughter as they passed the Impala. Shaw, the CIA guy, was in that Cadillac with Oswald. He passed his coke to Sherry. Patch waited until the Cadillac was back on the highway. Then he started the Impala. He slowly pulled onto Highway 10 and trailed the car at a distance. Let's see where they're headed. Patch secured the red Impala behind trees surrounding a hodgepodge brown house with a steep roof and a front porch overhang. A fire burned in the fireplace. The shiny black Cadillac, presumably with Clay Shaw in the driver's seat, was positioned under a tree in the front of the house. Patch was able to get a clear signal right inside the house. An older man with glasses answered the door. Oswald's first words were inaudible. No, just burning some trash, said the older voice. Oswald called the man Mr. Morgan and told him he was looking for a job at the state hospital. I could handle just about any job in the hospital's electrical department, any electrical work. I have a background conducive with electronics work. Well, that's important, having a skill. That fire feels good. Sometimes I love to sit here and just watch the fire, but it's been too hot. Yes, sir. I can look into the job at the hospital, unless one of my constituents asks first. You know how that is. You look like a civic-minded young scholar. What exactly do you mean? You know, a person registered in my parish on the voting rolls? Wouldn't hurt if you were a registered voter up here. Sherry leaned toward Patch. What did you hear, Patch? Oswald will try and register to vote so he can get a job at the state hospital. This is just plain crazy. It is in New Orleans when Pilatus Richard K. Snagel rears his double triple agent head. Nagel or Nagel did claim that he had a photo of himself and Oswald in Jackson Square, New Orleans. I use Nagel's character to bring forth information, and that will develop as the book continues. And we see army intelligence always lurking about. Also, many of the anti-Castro people pop up in New Orleans, used as a means to an end by the plotters who killed Kennedy and thus blamed Castro. This is Robert P. Fitton, Podcast 3 of Return to Dallas is over. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.